The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show and happy Friday. Oh my gosh, I'm really looking forward to this show. I mean, when I say there are new developments in the murder trial that's been captivating the nation of Alec Murdoch, I am understating the significance of what has happened over the past 24 hours. This is like if Scott Peterson took the stand. This is like if OJ took the stand. Um, except, unlike those two guys, this guy, Alec Murdoch, is as slick as they come. He's a former prosecutor. He's a career lawyer. And man, he's been slippery on the stand. It's actually been weirdly impressive to watch him dodge and weave as the prosecutor's thumb tries to pin him down. And it's getting very tense. They're in a break right now, but we've got all the latest developments for you. It's getting very tense now because this is where the rubber meets the road. They are zeroing in on the moments of the murders, the moments preceding the murders and right after the murders. And actually, it's fascinating because his demeanor's changing. His loquaciousness is changing. Suddenly, he's very short-winded instead of long. Um, so we're going to get into all of this. All right? This guy stands accused right now of murdering his own wife and his 22-year-old son on June 7th, 2021. The prosecution's theory is that he was under enormous financial strain. He had been caught by his law firm embezzling from them and stealing from clients and had been confronted that very day. He claims he was on opioids. He was also facing a lawsuit in connection with the son, Paul, who was murdered, uh, his boat crash a couple of years earlier in which a young woman was killed. So a lot of financial pressure and the theory of the prosecutors is essentially that he killed his wife and son to garner sympathy for himself and make the law firm and others get off his case. And there's been testimony in this case that that kind of happened. The law firm did take their foot off the pedal when they found out this happened to him. They were like, my God, backseat on all the financial misdeeds. Poor guy had a double murder in his family. Well, today on the stand, Mur Murdoch was asked why it took this trial getting underway and five weeks of testimony before he finally admitted that he lied. He lied to investigators about his alibi. And just for the viewers who aren't up to speed, what he originally told the cops, because he did talk, talked to the cops that night. I'm innocent. I'm helpful. I'm the grieving husband and father. What he originally told them was, I went down to the kennels or sorry, I never went down to the kennels where my wife and son were. Instead, I was back at home taking a nap during the time the murders took place. And I only went to the kennels later. And that's when I found the bodies. 
Well, unbeknownst to him, his son Paul had taken a Snapchat video six minutes before they believed the murder took place. And his voice is clearly on it. They had multiple witnesses say that's Alex's voice. He knew he couldn't get out of it. He knew the jury was believing it. It's so clearly his voice. So he decided to take the stand and the prosecutors pressed him. Okay, so you just finally decided to take a stand now. You finally decided in direct testimony yesterday to say, I lied to the investigators. I was at the kennels. That is my voice. Um, Finally decided to come clean about this. You didn't think like earlier in this case when the police investigated you and talked to you and interrogated you, that would have been a good time. And Alex Murdoch claimed he never really had the opportunity to confess. He He was dying to confess. He tried to call prosecution many times to confess, but they didn't get back to him. That's where we are right now. We've got another all-star Kelly's court panel to analyze it all. Mark Garagos is a trial lawyer and managing partner of Garagos and Garagos. I mentioned Scott Peterson. He represented Scott Peterson and would never have let him take the stand. He represented Michael Jackson and a bunch of other very famous people in big, big cases. And Ronnie Richter is back with us today. He's an attorney in South Carolina where this case is taking place and the founding partner of the Bland Richter Law Firm. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So let me start with you, Mark, since I mentioned Scott Peterson, um, and I have, we haven't heard from you, I had Ronnie on yesterday, but your reaction to the fact that the defense put Alec Murdoch on the stand at all, and your thoughts on how it's going so far? Well, number one, I don't know that I, I would probably take issue with the defense put him up. This is one of the only decisions that the defendant absolutely controls, meaning Murdoch can be advised by his uh, lawyers not to take the stand. I've been in a situation where I've actually, in a murder case on repeated times, told a client it's over my dead body and the client says, I don't care and testifies <laughs> anyway. So uh, that's, uh, that's one issue. But number two, Uh, He really has nothing, absolutely nothing to lose. The financial crimes, if you believe what's been put out there and what's been developed in this case, he's facing essentially under South Carolina law the rest of his life in prison anyway. So is he going to go down for those anyway and not uh, and get convicted of this? Or is he going to get up there and try to explain it? So I had always suspected he would take the stand and had said as much. I don't see any downside for him to take the stand. By the way, up until this morning, I would have told you he was winning on points. What I generally see in cases like this is if the prosecutor feels that way, he's going to run out the clock, regroup over the weekend and come back on Monday and keep cross-examining him. If the prosecutor sits down today, then the prosecutor thinks he's done his job. Are you guys feeling any frustration, Ronnie? Let me ask you at how let's put aside the last 15 minutes before they break at 1130 Eastern. Okay, because that that got spicy and it seemed to be going well. Uh, for the prosecution. But the 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 it started at 930. So we had almost two hours of testimony before that last 15 minutes. I am feeling frustrated as a recovering lawyer um, who did try cases at the the way this cross is being handled. You know, it, it's not that, like we're always taught and in actual practice, most skilled cross examiners only want yeses or nos from the, the person they're crossing. Um, and then you went down to the kennels, didn't you? And you saw Maggie and Paul, didn't you? And you spent the following amount of time there, didn't you? And yet you told this jury yesterday that for the first time, whatever, when you spoke to law enforcement uh, days after the murders and the night of the murder, you claimed you never went to the kennels. Isn't that true? Yes or no, sir. This calls for a yes. or You control 
the witness. It's not really about extracting info. It's about having the jury hear your version of the events confirmed by the defendant. And that's not what's happening here, Ronnie. No, I agree. I mean, on cross-examination, it's always the question that's more important than the answer. And you're you're literally just using the opportunity to grab the microphone and say what you want to say through the witness. So yes, I, he he gives he gives a skilled and a an evasive liar lots of rope and lots of microphone to get his speaking points in. And I would like to see him cut him off more effectively. It's very frustrating, Mark. It's like Alec Murdoch is smart, and this ain't his first rodeo in a courtroom. And he's taking all these opportunities to try to ingratiate himself with the jury, go off on his meandering talking points about things that may or may not matter to the case, but trying to show them, I'm helpful. I'm here, cat in hand, you know, admitting to the financial crimes. I didn't do the murder, but like, let me speak to you, South Carolinian to South Carolinian. We can all bond together. And the, the, the DA is allowing him to get away with it. Well, there's one thing that we probably should talk about. We are watching this and not in the courtroom. If you believe what's happening or what's being reported in the courtroom, yesterday I heard at least two reporters say that at least two jurors were crying during his testimony. Another juror apparently pushed some Kleenex towards him. If the prosecutor is seeing this, he may want to kind of run out the clock, which is what it seems like they're doing right now. To to follow up on your point, the fact that they've spent so much time in what Dick Harputlian said yesterday before they recess is I haven't heard murder, the word murder for the last two hours. Uh, and the judge said, well, that's fine. It's credibility. I think that's precisely what the prosecutor's mindset is. He's going to try to uh, destroy his uh, credibility. I will come back to this, though. He, I do, I do not think that they're laying a glove on him, even in the last, as you said, 15 minutes. The, it appears to me that he has endeared himself to at least a number of these jurors. That's all he needs in this case. A hung jury for him is as good as a win. I, It's right. You're exactly right. A hung jury is a huge win for Alec Murdoch, and so he just needs one. Ronnie, when you listen to this guy on the stand, to me, as somebody who very recently interviewed the human lie detector, Phil Houston, developed the CIA's deception detection program uh, that they're still using to this day, was at the CIA for 25 years actually doing this. So I'm, I'm not joking when I say he's a human lie detector. He actually is. And he talked to us at length about um, a little bit, actually, about this case in the Alec Murdoch interrogation interviews, but in general. And when you qualify all of your answers on the important details, it's a sign of deception. You know, if somebody says to me, Megan, did you cheat on your husband, Doug? I say, no, I didn't. I never have. Period. I don't say, well, if if I cheated on him, it was definitely not at a time when, um, you know, we were married. Uh, and it's not and I don't remember a time where I ever would have cheated. No, I didn't. That's what a truth teller sounds like. And we pulled just a small soundbite. But I do think it was interesting that this the, the story in uh, that's changed that's so critical is whether he was home taking a nap at the time of the murders or he was down at the kennels doing the murders. And he told the cops he was home taking a nap during the time of the murders, then got caught that, that he was there on that Snapchat video at least six minutes before the murders, like around six minutes before the murders took place. So now he's changed the story to, OK, I did go by the kennels, which isn't what I said initially. I did go by the kennels, 
I didn't want to do it, but I went. I did. And I had a quick exchange with Maggie and Paul. Then I went back home and got home around 848. This is where the prosecutor has them. They think the murders took place at 850. <laughs> 850. When the old version was, I was asleep that whole time. Okay, now he's home two minutes before the murders take place. And home is just, you know, yards away. Didn't hear anything. And we've gone from, I napped for an hour to, I dozed. Maybe I dozed. I didn't, well, and here's just a little bit of how he sounded on his alleged nap. All right, this is sound by three. Taking a nap, if I took a nap. But when I got up from laying down, as I was getting ready to go to my mom's, there was a point in time where I thought Maggie and Paul had come back. All right. It's, so just hold that because here's he goes on a little bit more in Sound by Six about his alleged nap. All right, before you said you'd been napping for an hour or so or napping that entire time. And now you you lay down on the couch. That's correct. All right. And maybe doze for a second. Maybe. According to your new story. How long did you doze? I, I, if, if I dozed, extremely short time. Extremely short time. Because you would agree with me that at 9.02, you're up and moving, according to the data. I agree that according to that data, my phone's recording steps at whatever time it is, 9.02 something. How long did it take you, if you're at the house at 8.49, how long before you went and laid on the couch? I would have gone straight to the couch, probably. I may have gone by the sink or... I, you know, I may have gotten a spit cup, but it would have been basically straight to the couch. I, I, if I did, I would have, I may have, it probably, that's what a liar sounds like, Ronnie. Yeah, it's a ridiculous story, you know, and the, the danger of having him put on the stand at all. I, I thought the defense was uh, gaining great ground on uh, a weak motive on weak forensics and on a rush to judgment by the investigator. So they had all of that in their camp. I agree with Mark. It sounds like this is the witness who just had to testify. But they, by him testifying, they turned a very complex case into a single issue case, which is, do you believe Alex Murdoch? And to put a finer point on it is a single issue case on one lie in particular. Why did you lie to the police about having not been at the kennels? And the account he gives for that lie, I think, is preposterous. So I it, this this is the hazard of, of having him testify or him insisting on testifying, because if, if you recall back to the, the, the reason he gave for having lied. It's not that the drugs made him do it, it's that his addiction made him paranoid and made him not trust the police, although he's. He's been a solicitor. He's a third generation solicitor. He is the law in Hampton County. So it's a ridiculous story. And now he's got to back into version two that puts him safely away from the uh, from the murder at the time it actually takes place. So he's put himself in quite a corner by electing to testify the way he has. Mark, that just react to that last soundbite. I may have napped. I probably would have. I may have got a spit cup, cup when I napped. If if I napped. The old story on camera to cops was I napped for one hour. Now, I mean, could you put more qualifiers in the on-stand testimony? Well, so one of the things, you know, my father was a homicide prosecutor, and he always used to say, 
that it doesn't matter what happens in a trial once the defendant takes the stand, because then the jurors are going to go back into that jury room and all they're going to talk about is what did the defendant say. And here, that's what they're going to be focused on. I don't agree so far. And like I say, we I think it's premature to make a judgment until we see whether they go the rest of the afternoon, regroup and come back on Monday or whether they just sit down. I think it's premature because so far, if what people are telling me in the courtroom is true, I think he's uh, acquitted himself, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, extremely well. And he's obviously connected with some of these jurors. And I, you know, the sip cup and the ship me up and the other colloquially expressions, colloquially expressions that he's been using, I, I think he resonates with some of these jurors. And it, obviously, only time will tell. But I also think that the prosecutor understands that. And I think part of the, because the prosecutors are taking enormous criticism on their approach. I think they understand that they've got to do something to erode or uh, to take back the narrative, if you will, because I think he's been effective so far. I know. Well, that's, I'm actually troubled by that as somebody who thinks he did it <laughs> by how I, kind of you charming should, he not, is. You have a, you've got a chorus of people who agree with you because <laughs> I, you cannot believe the ransacking that the prosecutors are taking here. And I, you know, I'm not one to usually jump in for, to defend the prosecutors, but I understand their conundrum. I've been there before on the other side. And if you've got jurors and you're watching those jurors in real time and they are, it's, uh, your uh, opponent is resonating, you have to be very careful as to what you do and how you do it. Mm. I mean, I've never tried cases like you have, and I I have never tried a criminal case. But it, I'm much more in your, in your old colleague Nancy Grace's field of get up there and browbeat the hell out of him. Show the jury you can't stand this guy. This is an evil man who murdered his own child and his wife and has been lying about it ever since. I'd, I'd have no trouble showing them I hate him and you should too. But the problem with that uh, approach, and I've gone round and round with Nancy about this over the years, mm -hmm. but the problem with that approach is you don't want to, if you are the person who's supposed to be guiding them to the ultimate truth, if you will, you don't want them to hate you or turn on you. And if you browbeat too much on somebody who they like or feel empathy for, they can turn mm -hmm. on you. I know that's true. But if there's been so much evidence in this case that I feel like makes them not like Alex Murdoch, Alec Murdoch, his best his best quality is what we're seeing on the stand or what we at least saw yesterday on direct, which is he's a good talker. He sounds like a, you know, sort of, I don't know, a guy you'd want to have a drink with or a dinner with like that, like the way he talks. And he's he's sort of doing a good job of seeming helpful. Um, but the prosecutor got got a good line in on that right before they went to break when, you know, Alec Murdoch is like, I've been so cooperative. And the prosecutor saw a moment and took it. This is soundbite four. Uh, other than lying to them about going to the kennel, I was cooperative in every aspect of this investigation. Very cooperative, except for maybe the most important fact of all, that you were at the murder scene with the victims just minutes before they died. Right? I did not tell them that I went to the kennel. That was a good moment, Ronnie, for team prosecution.
Well, it was. I mean, the, the miss is that not to be critical of the prosecution. I think they're doing a, a good job. He's a difficult witness. But the whole purpose of the financial crimes truly was to bolster a pretty weak motive case for, for the state. We all know that. You know, that being said, if it's turning into a credibility case, the financial crimes are a goldmine. And, and yet the prosecution let Alec get away with this false narrative all day yesterday that he's candidly and openly admitting that he stole that money. I mean, I don't know how many times I need to say it to you, Mr. Waters. I took that money. It was wrong. He he pled not guilty to all 90 of those offenses. As he sits in the courtroom today, the official position is not guilty. So I, I think he should have snapped that off on him pretty good. And then, and then with Russell Lafitte, there's another example. Um, he tried to come to the defense of Russell Lafitte and, and the uh, and Remind us who the that Parker is. Sisters. Yeah, and, and what he said about Russell Lafitte is Russell had nothing to do with this. I I, I did all of that uh, by myself. Well, wait, but remind is Russell Lafitte the bank executive who was found guilty on the, like helping Alec with these crimes? Yes, yes. I'm sorry. He is the bank official from Palmetto State Bank who was charged as a co-conspirator on many of Alex's financial crimes. He was tried in, in Charleston just months ago. Alex didn't appear for his friend. He sat silently by why this guy got tried and convicted on all of those offenses. And yet yet he tries to garner some sympathy, some credit for now saying openly, well, Russell had nothing to do with that. You know, there was a time to come forward and say that. And it, it wasn't yesterday. It was when your good friend, Russell Lafitte, was facing his own trial and was convicted. The problem is that arguably is what's called Griffin error. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on that, and that's uh, commenting on the failure to of a defendant to comment can get you in big trouble as a prosecutor, and they don't want to go down that road. They've had a couple of objections on that so far. When when the the DA said, "You never told anybody this story, did you? You never volunteered," and the, and the defense is sort of trying to stand up and say Fifth Amendment, you know, privilege. He had no no obligation to, and the judge has been overruling that objection. But the financial what? crimes, it's not that Alec Murdoch has rehabilitated himself on them. But he has been saying, OK, I lied, feel terrible. I'm very sorry to everybody, but not for nothing. Um, like the one guy I stole from owed me a bunch of money, so I didn't really feel like I was that much of a crumb in stealing back from him. He owed me the dough. Our our joint investment fell apart. And then I was the one stuck with the bill. So, yes, I did steal money when it came you know, from him later or to should have gone to him. But, you know, he's no angel is kind of what Alec Murdoch said. OK, point for him. Why the why the prosecutor is allowing him to go on like this again? I do not know. And then he says um, he made some points on you know, the prosecution's theory is on on June 7th, 2021. He was confronted by the law firm. We know you stole. You've been embezzling. You stole from clients. You know, you're basically if all this is true, you're not only fired, you're going to get disbarred. The water's creeping up on Alec Murdoch. To the point where he goes home and kills his family to generate sympathy for himself instead of making himself into this horrible person in the newspapers the next day. And he has been rehabilitating himself on that, too, Ronnie, saying it really wasn't much of a confrontation. When I talked to Jeannie uh, of the law firm, like she was basically like, eh, I feel bad even raising this. We, you know, we've noticed some irregularities, but he has way, way, way downplayed what happened between him and the law firm on June 7th. And that's that's hurtful to the prosecution. You know, it is hurtful to the prosecution. When she testified, uh, Jeannie was a terrific witness. And I, I think 
she gave a completely different account of what that that exchange was with Alex. It was far more confrontational. It was far more direct. And at the time she testified, I think it came across very impactfully. But that was a long, long time ago. So I don't think the jury recalls much of, of Jeannie. I think they're going to take away Alex's recall of it, that it was really kind of a non-event. I, I do think he gave very good answers to dispel the idea that his financial world was collapsing on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And that's motive. That's, that's motive, which, of course, is not required, um, but nice to have. More with uh, Mark and Ronnie after this quick break. The University of Austin is a new university dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. At UATX, a culture of free, open inquiry and civil discourse helps us break through barriers instead of walking on eggshells. Students will feel at home in our downtown Austin campus. With guidance from world-class professors, they'll grapple with history's most important ideas. They'll learn through dialogue, without fear of censorship, while forming friendships that last a lifetime. They'll have unparalleled access to mentors in business, science, politics, and the arts, and develop careers alongside Austin's leading entrepreneurs, builders, and founders. What's more, all students in the founding class will receive full tuition scholarships for all four years. Admissions are rolling for fall 2024. Apply to the University of Austin now at uaustin.org. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on hollywoodtakeover.com slash mk. That's hollywoodtakeover.com slash mk. Ronnie Richter remains. He's a South Carolina lawyer. Mark just got called into court because he's a busy, busy man. So uh, we'll see. We'll check back in with Mark and his thoughts. But let me go back to Ronnie. Um, so, Ronnie, one of the things that's been bothering me about the, the Alec Murdoch testimony is and, and the prosecutor's trying to point this out, like you got this great memory for all sorts of details, unless they relate to the moments before the murder or right before you claim you left Paul and Maggie. And here was just an example that just stuck out to me is, you know, like this, this makes no sense where he, he allegedly can't remember what would be the final conversation he had with his own wife. This would be, think about it. If you, if you have a loved one, a spouse who gets brutally murdered, you don't remember the last words you spoke to that person. Everyone remembers the last words they spoke to a dying loved one, whether it's by murder or another cause. But I would imagine, especially if it were a murder. Here's Sot 5. Did I say goodbye? Yeah. Did you talk to them at all, or did you just get the chicken, put it on there, jump on there, and oh, just no. take off? I wouldn't have just gone off. I mean, I would have said, I'm leaving. Okay. Did I say goodbye or bye? And again, go but, ahead. I mean, there would have been some, you know, there, there would have been some exchange 
I'm not staying here. Well, what was that exchange? I mean, you have you've had such a photographic memory about these news stories. What 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 happened here? No, it's not. I can't tell you the exact words. You don't remember your conversation after you put that chicken up. Did y'all talk about the chicken? No, I don't think we did. Did you talk with Paul about Cash's tail? After the chicken? Yeah. No, I, I know I didn't do that. Did you tell Maggie I'm going to go check on him? At that point, no, I don't. I don't did you think tell I did. Maggie, oh, it's hot out here. Think I'll go back? I, I certainly would have said something to that effect. All right. I mean, Ronnie. Really? No, no, it bothers you for the same reason it bothers me, and that is that is not truthful testimony. The, but the bigger question is, what is the jury hearing, you know? Has he connected with one, two, or more, like Mark seemed to believe? Um, when you see the techniques that he's using in answering questions, he recasts questions all the time, right? So I don't know, what do you mean by wealthy? I mean, I don't know, what do you mean by, um, you know, just constantly creating room for himself to maneuver by recasting the question, even here in this most important of all conversations ever, He's creating time and space for himself to think about it. You don't have to think about the last words that you said to your to your wife who's brutally murdered. And it's not believable. So if a jury believes he's lying about the most important fact in the case, and that's the fact that he was there minutes before the murders, then he has to be guilty. Mm -hmm. And even just like he's he's sort of lost the thread on when to cry. You know, like yeah. he he knows he should cry when he's talking about the condition of the bodies when he allegedly stumbled upon them innocently, not knowing what he was walking into. But an actual grieving relative would 100 percent be choked up in talking about the last moments they laid eyes upon their son and their wife literally four minutes before they were brutally murdered when you could have been there. Maybe you could have stopped it. You could like that's what a normal dad or spouse would be saying, like, my God. It, it would be emblazed in your brain, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you play this over in your head over and over again? Every movement, every glance, you know, every word that was spoken. I mean, if, if there are facts that should be cemented in this man's mind, it's that last interaction with the people who meant the most to him in the world. Yes. And that he's fuzzy on those facts really doesn't play well at all. Yes, honestly, I, the audience knows I lost my sister, um, who's 58 years old, just this past October. And I, I mean, I remember every word I said to her when I got to that hospital. She couldn't, you know, necessarily hear me, but it doesn't matter. I remember every word I uttered in that hospital room where we were for hours. That, that kind of memory doesn't go away. It's seared no. in one's memory. You know you're losing somebody who's hugely important to you. and even if he didn't know he was about to lose Maggie and Paul, you go back and relive it. You know, you most people beat themselves up after they lose somebody suddenly due to murder, due to a car crash and say, like, why didn't I say I love them? I wish I had given him a hug. You know, like none of that. None of that. He's just weaselly all over the board. No, and, and I, I am in the past have lost a loved one to an act of violence. And I, I could tell you, I think mentally you're prepared to hear the news that maybe someone got sick or there was a terrible accident but you're not prepared to hear the news that someone died violently. And mm. it, it, it embosses on you. I mean, it, where you are, what, 
who you spoke to, what those words were. It it imprints immediately and, and indelibly. So I don't buy at all that that he's looking for the words that should be so imprinted in his mind. Especially if you were there moments before the act took place. Any normal family member would be saying, the number of hours I have beaten myself up for going back to the house. Why did I go back to the house? What if I had stayed there? Maybe I could have saved them. Maybe I would have seen the killer. You know, none of that. He's not He's not emotionally in tune enough to realize this is a whole thread that actual grieving family members would be mired in. And there was an important admission, I thought. It was the only moment I've seen him on the stand, Ronnie, where he didn't seem to get that he was giving them a good admission. He, he's been two steps ahead of them for most of the cross. But in this one moment, he didn't seem to realize what he was admitting when the prosecutor was asking him about whether the dogs at the kennels were acting strangely as if potentially a stranger was there. Because, of course, what, the, what he's setting up is under your new story, sir, you left. And like two minutes later, after you left, they were murdered. And so somebody didn't just pop up at the kennels or on the Mazelle property within those two minutes. Like that person would have had to be there. And this is how Alec Murdoch handled the, the, the questions about the dogs at Satu. Were the dogs barking and carrying on or going out into the woods or acting like they sensed somebody was around that they didn't know? Were the dogs acting like there was somebody around that they didn't know? Yeah, like dogs do. No. The, no, they there, weren't. There was nobody there was no around dog. that the dogs didn't know. Okay. Dogs didn't, didn't, to your indication, sense anything out of the ordinary. They were just chasing after the guinea. There was nobody else around. All right. Good. For them to, to, to sense. What did you make of that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm from here, and I don't know for the broader audience that they can appreciate just how remote this place is. I mean, this is this is as rural South Carolina as you can make it. Um, there's some backwaters. There's some farms. I mean, there is nothing out there. And people who do have dogs or kennels, I mean, they're out there for a reason. If, if anything moves, I mean, they're, they're raising hell out there. And it, it's an experience that the, the jurors here would, would understand. Also, this family in that community, you know, if, if a squirrel farts in Hampton, I mean, the, the Murdoch's know about it. So the, the idea that two unknown assailants could have slipped into Mazelle in the middle of the night undetected and been there coincidentally just minutes after Alex leaves the area and shoots and kills Maggie and Paul with weapons that were from the residence is so outlandishly it, it's it's hitting the lottery while getting struck by lightning I, and mm -hmm. to me i hope that's what the the prosecution ultimately conveys to the jury how unlikely it could be that it's anybody other than alex mm -hmm. he um yeah when they i hope they are better at closing than they are at crossing that's my one big hope like when you've got your cross mm -hmm. because the the best way to do a cross examination and I, I was watching it thinking they should have they needed to pull an all nighter and they didn't because you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. 
And you say, Mr. Murdoch, you previously told law enforcement that you took a nap. We've gone back and checked. We can't find him saying an hour, which, as the prosecutor said, I'm trusting the guy that that's what Alex said at some point. We do. We have it. Hold on. Listen to my team here. Let's play what we do have. Here's where here's what we heard Alex saying 25 minutes. It's definitely longer than may or maybe not napped. Can't be sure. I might have napped a short dose, whatever. He used to say 25 minutes. Here's what we have. I uh, I was up at the house, uh, laid down, took a nap on the couch, probably, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. I got up. I called Maggie. OK, so you and I both know a skilled prosecutor has that at the ready. And they say, mm-hmm. yesterday you told this jury that you may or may not have napped. Your, your news story is you don't you don't know if you napped. Isn't it true you told law enforcement moments after the alleged murder you napped for 25 to 30 minutes? Yes, it is. In fact, here you are telling law enforcement, let the jury see it and then let him lie right on the back end of it. Like at every turn, you should be doing that to underscore what a liar he is and on big details and small. Yeah, you, you have to wonder. I Certainly they anticipated he would testify, but may, maybe not. You know, maybe you would want those first 10, 15, 20 questions to be just hit, stick, move, no room for a wiggle from Alex Murdoch. Hit with your best punches first. And, and to your point, there should be nothing more than room to say yes or no. And if he says anything else, he's going to look like the liar that he is. But mm-hmm. that's not the way the prosecution came out of the box. Now, it's it's more of a grind. Um, but I think you got to capture that jury immediately and hit with your best, best punch fast. The, the um, I, You tell me, is it a Southern thing, like a polite manners thing? Because I know they're a lot more polite in the South than they are in New York, where I'm from. Um, yes. But I'll give the audience an example that they remember recently. And that was the cross-examination of Amber Heard in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case. Um, the lawyer, Camille Vasquez, she did not offer her any quarter. It was Answer my question, please. That's not what I asked you. Your Honor, could you please instruct the witness to answer the question? If you can't control the witness yourself, you get the judge to step in because the judge understands. And so does the the lawyer for the person on the stand. This is cross-examination. This is cross. I'm allowed to be aggressive. I'm allowed to treat the witness as hostile. I'm allowed to elicit only the answers that I'm asking for, yeses or noes, if that's what I want. And if you try to wiggle, I will control you. I will prove to you and this jury who is in control. It is me. It is not you. And so like she did a masterful job with Amber Heard and scored a lot of points. So is it a is it a cultural difference? A little bit. I mean, there are rules of engagement here that I think don't apply everywhere else. I mean, and he did lose his wife and his son. Okay, so that that's a fact that we know. Um, So you have to tread lightly a little bit. okay? but when he starts becoming evasive. It's at that point you're allowed to take the gloves off and go hard. Now, if you if you have a, a bad witness, a bad person on the stand, yes, you go hard immediately. But this is kind of an unknown quantity. You know, is the jury perceiving him as the murderer or as the victim? We're not sure. But mm-hmm. Alex yeah. gave the prosecution the opportunity to go hard when he started becoming evasive. And, yes, and, with and all those once, qualifying once that door's words. open, then you go in. All those qualifying words, as Phil Houston, human lie detector explains, are basically off routes. He's giving himself off routes like maybe might have could be possibly because he doesn't know what the prosecutor has. He doesn't know 
whether the prosecutor's got something in his pocket that he's going to hammer him over the head with if he's too definitive, if Alec is too definitive. So he puts all these off routes in their qualifiers like, well, I didn't say I said maybe I said probably I didn't really commit to that. But that's what a skilled liar does. And that and now, Ronnie, this story about I was prepared to tell you this story all along. You blew off all my many phone calls to, to you, the prosecutors. There I was sitting in jail saying, I want to tell you something really important. And nobody returned my call. Here's a little bit of that on the stand sot one. Did you ever reach out to anyone in law enforcement or the prosecution and tell that story that you told this jury yesterday about the kennels before yesterday? Did I ever reach out to law enforcement to say, I want to tell you about the kennels? No, sir, I did not. Before yesterday, did you ever bring up what you told this jury about that kennels to anybody in the prosecution or anybody in law enforcement? No, I I didn't have the opportunity to, Mr. Waters, because you would not respond to my invitations to reach out and tell you about all the things that I'd done wrong. And to talk about bringing this to a head, to talk about bringing this to closure. I understand how many people I hurt. I understand um, how angry my partners are and how hurt. Unbelievable. I mean, like literally unbelievable. Well, I mean, it, it's, it starts with a terrible question, right? You know, did you instead of isn't it true that you never is the way that you would want that question to be phrased. But you give him the microphone. And the guy's a chameleon on the stand. And yes, you, you hear him recast the question first to give him the room to think and, the, and then go back on the offensive with the answer. So he's, he's very skilled up there. Mm-hmm. What what the lawyer did for the prosecution instead was he switched to, well, you never told your friends that you never told the witnesses who have spoken to you between then and now this story, uh, which was less effective. I mean, now the jury's wondering. Did he reach out to the prosecution and offer to come clean on all of this? Like, uh, sadly, the prosecutors left that as a question in the air. Yeah, and they invited that pain through through a poorly phrased question. You should never give room to even, you know, expand on the answer to that question. Isn't it true that you never said that before today? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you don't give him room to, to uh, wax poetic about what he could have done. Well, and here's the other thing. Then he tried that the prosecutor was floundering, right? Because he's like, oh, God, you know, I wasn't prepared for that left, you know, turn. Yeah. Um, So then he goes to, isn't it true your lawyer? Because the defense lawyer, Jim Griffith, appeared on this good HBO documentary called Low Country. There's one out right now on Netflix. The two are not to be confused. They're different uh, filmmakers. But the Low Country Mm -hmm. one has been out for a while. And Jim Griffith appeared in it and offered some of Alec Murdoch's defense. And he says, isn't it true that your lawyer appeared in a film as recently as November 2020 in which he wasn't telling this story of you not napping and actually down at the kennels uh, within moments of the murders? And Alec Murdoch's response is basically, oh, he gave that interview before November 2020 you know, or, or whatever the date was. He's like, he actually sat for the I mean, what? The prosecutor is unprepared. You have the clip, you know, because you've done your homework. When did Jim Griffith sit for that interview? You say, isn't it true? Your lawyer said this play. The jury hears it. Why did he say that? That he's speaking for you. 
Right. And the, the judge actually, the, the, the defense got up there and said attorney client privilege. Right. Like, what did you tell your lawyer? Because he got into like, what hadn't you told your lawyer? And uh, they, they said attorney client privilege. And the judge overruled the objection. He was going to let Murdoch testify what he had told the lawyers. And the prosecutor backed away. He was like, never mind. I think we've gotten the point. No, no, we haven't gotten the point. You did not stick the dagger in. You did not twist the dagger. You kind of teased him with the dagger and then you walked away. Yeah, and, and it's just asking that question that you don't really know the answer to or to your point that you're not prepared to follow up on. So if you really thought Alex was ever going to take the stand, I mean, you, you don't want to work off of the script because you want to be a little more natural than that. But there should be in your queue, you know, these highlights, these points that you must make with without affording any opportunity to Alex or his team to offer any explanation, you know, the changing of the answer from I went back and took a nap for 25 minutes to uh, maybe I dozed off for a second, maybe I didn't. He should have been able to nail him right there with the video at the moment to drive the point home. And the point is that Alex's story changes as he learns more about what the prosecution has in its queue. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Now, they are, having said that, through you know a series of admissions and statements they have gotten out of him and of course now we know thanks to the snapchat video he was at the murder scene six minutes before we believe well now now it's shortened to four minutes before we believe the murders took place because he says he left um he i guess he was there we know at 44 8 44 he says he was there for probably two minutes so that puts it 8 46 that he's at the kennels possibly 8 47 if you add on the seconds that they've got the timing on let's say 8 47 and th- we believe the murders happened three minutes after that. So they've gotten that. And they also have, they can tell from his cell phone when he got up and started walking around. And they know he took a bunch of steps at 9.02. So at most, even if you give him two minutes driving back home, you've got, he's back home at 8.50. You got 10 minutes inside that house, which is why he had to change to, maybe I dozed. Maybe I closed my eyes for one minute from, I took the nap for 25 minutes. Like they have him, the prosecution, Notwithstanding the kind of lackluster job on cross, Ronnie, the, the forensic evidence is pretty strong. Yeah, I think it is as well. And, uh, you know, what they've proven more than anything else, I, I apologize. What they've no, proven I'm... more than anything else with the financial crimes is that Alex is a monster. OK, and what, what we know about monsters is that, that we don't trust them and that they're capable of doing anything. So. If he's a monster and he's lied about being at the scene, you know, is he guilty of the crime ultimately? He tried, the prosecutor tried to zero in on those financial crimes and get him to admit he remembers looking at a client in the eye and lying to him. That too did not go very well. That was also an exercise in frustration, but we queued up just a bit of it in SOD 11. Every single one of these, you had to sit down and look somebody in the eye and convince them that you were on their side when you were not, correct? That's what you did in every single one of these. I mean, every time... Answer my question, yes or no, and then you can explain. I'll let you explain all day long. Well, I mean, no, sir, that may or may not be true. And Mr. Waters, just to try to get through this quicker, I admit... I know you want to get through it quicker, but we're not. So answer the question, please. What, 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 I, what I admit is that I misled them, I did wrong, and that I stole their money. For me to sit here and tell you specifically that I remember sitting down and talking with Natasha Thomas, I, I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you, and mm-hmm. I can tell you that I didn't do right by Natasha Thomas, 
I took money from Natasha Thomas that didn't belong to me, and I was wrong for doing that. What did you make of that one, Ronnie? Yeah, you know, he's, again, his official position, He there is an indictment for him on that crime, and he, he has pled not guilty. He's He maintains not guilty today. Was that his guilty plea now that you're in front of the jury, now that you're trying to garner some favor? I mean, I, I think it. I think ultimately that is devastating to him that if we can, you know, catalog him to be, characterize him to be uh, a skilled liar, how do we trust that in the most important lie of his life, the lie about not being at the kennels, that he was telling us the truth? Mm-hmm. Honestly, it, it, there was no reason for the, do you remember the moment of looking him in the eyes and lying? You save that for your closing. You can argue that yeah. on closing. You don't have to keep throwing out all these lines and pulling in zero fish. It's just ineffective. It's kind of frustrating. Ronnie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. To be continued. And the cross-examination is to be continued this afternoon, too. We'll have full coverage for you on Monday. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arcseedkits.com. going to take some letters from the MK mailbag. If you want to mail me, you can at Megan, just go email it at M-E-G-Y-N at MeganKelly.com. M-E-G-Y-N at M-E-G-Y-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com. That's how you reach me. You can also sign up for our American News Minute, which only comes out on Fridays and is always worth your time. It's all the news of the week in one minute or less, plus some really fun clips and things you might have missed on the show. Everybody really enjoys it. So think you will too. It doesn't cost you a thing um, and keeps you up on the news in a very low cost kind of way. Okay. So, so much mail. I think we broke the mailbag record uh, on the Yonmi Park interview, which aired last Friday. If you didn't hear it, please go listen to it. I promise you it will change your life. I promise. How, how many people can say that? I promise you it'll change your life. It'll change your dinner conversation that night. It'll, you'll want to tell everybody you want to share it. I'm telling you, that's how much confidence I have in the Yonmi Park interview. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Ellen writes in the interview with Ms. Park left me speechless. Her story should be taught in schools. Listening to her really made me understand how sick our higher education system in is. I have to work much harder and stay true to my convictions. Bill with a similar sentiment saying everyone in the U.S. should hear what it's like to live under an oppressed society. She was from North Korea. She escaped and have to endure what this young woman and her mother experienced. Her appreciation and understanding for our country is amazing. For someone who's relatively new to the United States, she can clearly see that we are headed in the wrong direction. 
Here's just one other. Lori in Calgary writes in, wow, 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 what a moving interview. I felt a flood of mixed emotions throughout it. God has his hand on that young lady. Uh, North America's got to wake up. My gosh, so true. So many people wrote in that they were fighting tears or that they did cry. Yonmi too is more emotional than she's been in a lot of her interviews. You know, I mean, you find a way of sort of packing that trauma up when you've been through so much of it. But we had such a beautiful exchange. Uh, she was moved. I was moved. The audience was moved. Worth your time. Okay. Um, last week, I was in Vegas for a couple of days. I was uh, doing an event out there, and I decided to parlay it into a girls' trip. So there's this group of friends. Uh, in all, we are seven. And uh, we met in New York when we were raising our young kids. All of our daughters, in particular, were in the same preschool together. And uh, we call ourselves Joe Palooza because we, the first girls' trip we took was to celebrate our friend Joelle and her 40th birthday. So Joe Palooza went to Vegas, had a super great time, and two members of Joe Palooza came on with me, and you met them, uh, Yael uh, Denbo and uh, Joel Cosentino. So got some fun feedback on them. Here's, here's some samples. Valerie writes in, no group of people have more vacation fun than a group of women friends. The best part of the show was your message to women on how important it is to have kind, smart, and emotionally supportive women in your lives. This is the message we must pass on to our girls. Valerie, word. Can I tell you, as the audience may know, because I talk about this sometimes, I'm not great at this. Like, I'm, I'm not great at pursuing my friends. And I'm actually not even that great at being pursued. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm so busy with my show and my family that my friendships fall down first because of me. And uh, my therapist, who I love, 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 he recently told me, MK, he said, you've got to make a commitment to do at least three social things a week. Doesn't have to be like three dinners out. That's a lot, right? We can't do that. But like, maybe it's just like a walk with somebody or maybe it's a phone conversation even. Or like last night, I was in the city for the Ben Shapiro yes, uh, interview yesterday. And I'm in the city where I used to live. And so I called my friend. I'm like, hey, do you want to meet for a drink? I hadn't made the plan in advance. Sometimes that's risky. You can easily be rejected. She's like, sure. She was going out to dinner later with her husband. She said, I'll meet you. We had such a nice time. It was, it was like an hour, hour 15, caught up. I felt the connection. I felt better. So my, my therapist is right, and you guys should give it a try too. Um, here are a couple of questions. Uh, Kyla in Tennessee writes in about motherhood. She writes, I am currently pregnant with our first child. Congrats, Kyla, a longtime listener. And I wonder if my son will find your voice more recognizable than my own. Ha ha. In all seriousness, any advice for a first time mom? You know what, Kyla? I can tell you that Abby's children have had the same problem. And um, the little one, Lillian, is just like me. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. So good luck with your son. The only piece of advice I have for you as a first time mom um, is don't be too hard on yourself. M many of us struggled with that first year or two and didn't particularly love it. And it doesn't mean you're a bad mom. It just means you're a regular mom struggling with the regular challenges that come with a new baby. Do not believe 70s reference the Breck commercial that is not what it looks like it's hard and they spit up on you and they vomit on you and they crap on you but it's amazing it's amazing and when they get a little older it's easier and they're so fun and they're so fulfilling don't listen to Chelsea Handler uh having a child was a great idea and it only gets better pure talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because pure talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. 
Pure Talk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network. But now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple. Or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to PureTalk. Just go to puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has a over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arcseedkits.com. We have covered one dysfunctional family today (laughs) with the Murdochs down in South Carolina. So we're going to keep that theme rolling. Stand-up comedian and host of the very popular weekly podcast, Kill Tony, Tony Hinchcliffe, joins us now. He is one of America's top rising young comedians, as he likes to point out. And he is here to discuss his crazy, crazy upbringing, political correctness, and how we have lost our ever-loving minds as a society. He knows firsthand. Tony, welcome to the show. Hello, Megan. How are you? Hey, I'm good. It's great to have you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for allowing such an offensive introduction to you. <laughs> no, I like it. You, you pretty much nailed it. I love it. We're in the, Dysfunctional yeah. family. It's, I mean, no, the vast majority just... of people have them. If you, all you need to do is get talking with somebody and you realize even if you think you came from a healthy family, you didn't. Oh, yeah. Especially in my world, the comedians that uh, that end up hanging out with us and with me are just, I mean, it's just wild. And the musicians out here in Austin, Texas, that's another thing. You find that the best rock stars, the ones that can make a guitar appear to float in front of them when having a solo all have these crazy, crazy backgrounds. No, nothing is normal. None of them that I know ever had dinner with their entire family after they all went to their nine to five jobs. There's nothing normal about, uh, any of the most creative people that I know. You know, when you think, exactly, I was just going to say, people who go into the entertainment field in general, whether it's acting, the theater, whether it's music, comedy, art, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, they do tend to have a fair amount of, like maybe more than their fair share of family damage. And maybe this was just the release they needed or what got the creative juices flowing. Like you kind of need that. I had a relatively normal upbringing. So I became a lawyer. That's what happens when you have a relatively normal, (laughs) you wind up a lawyer, sadly. Yeah, that's a lot of reading books right there. It's not that easy to calm your brain and read books when you're uh, when you're used to whatever we all came from. I mean, it's wild. But what's weird in your situation is, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
you know, you had like a loving mom, you had loving siblings. It's not like you were beaten. It's there's a very weird situation with your dad who, I mean, maybe bigamous is too strong for what he was doing, but it was kind of in the bigamy lane. Yeah, it was uh, a bigamy. What what exactly does that mean? Bigamy would mean he's married to two women. No, bigamy would mean he's married to two different women and has like two different families. That's not right. exactly right. Right, right. Well, it was old school Italian uh, in a what was a mostly a, like a Catholic city, and it was a an all black neighborhood. So like we were the last of the Italians to be even in our little part of Youngstown, Ohio, which by the way is. I believe 20 minutes from East Palestine. And I've been talking with my mom about everything that's going on. I told her if it starts raining, get the hell out of there, get under Mm -hmm. something and Mm -hmm. have bagged ice and don't stay away from your tap water. But anyway, um, yeah, it was a very, very, very interesting situation to where, uh, you know, my back then you didn't get divorced. So my dad and my mom were hooking up with each other forever for years. And yeah, he was, uh, right around the corner. It turns out the entire married time. To someone else. Yes. Yes. And, was, and he was never your got mom married, married to, to someone else too. Yeah. They were both married. So neither one of them got divorced. They just started hanging out all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were all sleeping in different beds than their partners. It was just, a, I guess it was a thing back in 1984 to, uh, to rather than separate from someone completely to just live in the same house, sleep separately, hate each other basically. And, uh, yeah, they were doing whatever they wanted. Was it disclosed and, to the spouse or the person, you know, their partner who was in their home? Did, th- did those, did their current like in-home romantic partners know that there was somebody else. Well, what's interesting is that I think my dad's wife at the time always suspected something. And then she heard rumors that he had a kid and it was just rumors that there was some kid that went to St. Ed's school that was saying that, you know, so-and-so was his dad. And then one day I was bartending after I went to LA and went broke the first time at the age of 18, I had to go back to save money again. So I got this job bartending temporarily in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, at a place called Anthony's on the river. Anyway, it's like their 30th high school reunion, 30th or 40th or something of, uh, a high school. And I'm just slinging drinks. It's just a, it's an open bar for this high school reunion. And this lady comes up and looks at me like she's seen a ghost and, uh, I almost knew immediately. I feel like I knew immediately who it was and what was happening. And she said to me, she goes, you know, is your dad Joe blank and blank, right? My dad's name. And I go, yep, sure is. And she goes, wow, you look exactly like him. And I married him 30 years ago or whatever it was. So it was like she was seeing a ghost, this, you know, 18 or 19 year old bartender. And she's looking at like the man that she married before. And she had just heard rumors. But the crazy thing is that she was super, super cool about it. She insisted that, you know, uh, she actually had a lot of power. It was interesting. She got me to the whole side of my dad's family to meet me and 
bring bring me in. We had a nice big uh, Italian like party kind of a a welcome to the family party when I was wow. eighteen or nineteen. So, so you had never was, known your biological dad's side of the family. You only knew your biological mom. Correct, a hundred percent. So it was all very very interesting. But I mean, again, this is how comedians are made. You you got to have yeah. some weird stuff, and you know, you I think that do. like this is next level weird though because I know I heard you tell Doctor Drew something to the effect of you you really you knew your dad he would come by like a couple times a week when you were really young and then it started mm -hmm. to peter down to like a couple times a year and your mom right. had a story prepared for you on why you saw your dad so little was your was your I don't, is it are we calling the other guy your stepdad like the person who was in home well where would he be when your dad would come by for the visits well, once I was born, that other guy was out. Once she got pregnant and they weren't uh, hooking up, he knew that that was that was it pretty much. He figured that one out. And, okay, so he and so out. he was out of the house at that time. Um, but yeah, it was it was tricky. So like when he would come and visit, you know, I would try to impress him because I I wanted him to hang out more. So it's the ultimate like I can see how I became the way that I became. It's just a, a kid that, because once I figured out that he was, you know, again, I, I might as well just tell the quickest version of this story yeah. for the listeners that don't know it, which is, yeah, she told me that he worked a lot on the road. And then when I was, you know, I can't remember, maybe, geez, 10, 11, 12, I always get it confused, but I was very, very young. And, um, I noticed that across the, when I was taking the school bus to school that uh, across the street from my one friend's house, there was a, a white SUV that looked exactly like my dad's car. So the next day when we drove by that car, I took note of the license plate. And then the next time my dad visited, I matched up the license plate with the car that's always in the driveway across from my one friend's house that I saw on the school bus. My dad visited, but I didn't want to bring it up then. Uh, so he left and then I brought it up to my mom. I go, look, I, I have matched up the license plate to, you know, a house where right across the street from Jeff Lewis's house. And she just broke it down to me. She told me everything at a very, very, you know, young age, again, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And, um, she told me, yep, your dad lives a few blocks away. He has a different family. He has two older kids than you. Um, you were supposed to keep this a secret. He's a little bit connected to some, you know, it, it was Youngstown at the time. And you know, it was it, mafia. I mean, everything was just, it's just, just a land of illegal crime activity, <sighs> um, extreme gambling, everything that you sort of see. I used to watch Goodfellas and a Bronx tale and Sopranos just to sort of feel that was the closest thing to my Italian family that I had is taking a sick day from school and watching Goodfellas and eating spaghetti. Like it was like in my no. DNA. And, uh, so yeah, she broke everything down to me, which I think created this kind of like, you know, I don't know, kind of like a little monster inside of me. That's like, I'm going to show him I'm cooler than the kids that he likes, you know, that he has over there. I'm going to, you know, I have to figure out a way to impress my father, just simple mm -hmm. psychology 101. And, uh, you know, everything evolved to, 
you know, it was cool. And then I went to LA and then at this point, it's just been amazing. You know, we don't communicate that often, but when we do, it's hilarious and cool. And he got to come see me perform in an arena in Pittsburgh a few months ago and hang out with Joe Rogan in the green room afterwards. We watched a really cool boxing match that was going on. And, you know, those green rooms and arenas are amazing. So he's drinking coffee and he's just having a blast chain smoking cigarettes watching boxing with a crew of guys that he just watched have a blast in the middle of an arena so i think i finally accomplished the the goal of uh trying to impress my father for 38 years still talking about it like that because i would feel like by this point usually the anger kicks in you know the resentment like where were you why didn't you pay more attention to me you don't sound resentful it's so interesting. I think about that sometimes. I never felt that way. He's a cool guy. He's a cool Italian guy. You know, the wife beater and the gold chain and the <laughs> nice, you know what I mean? Like he's always well presented, you know, black dress shirt, fresh press. I mean, he's a cool guy. He's likable. He's very funny. He talks cool. He talks like a real old school Italian, you know, and I never really felt resentment towards him it was just always a it was just always simply i want him to think i'm cool i want to make him laugh when he's around i want him to you know know that i'm okay i've always told him that and my mom that is that i wouldn't change a thing about my chaotic upbringing in youngstown and it being a dangerous neighborhood and my family being completely you know a chaotic different thing but i wouldn't change a thing about it i love how well one of the things that i know you you dealt with there was you know as you point out it's a tough neighborhood and um now i did not grow up in a tough neighborhood in that way but i had vicious like tween and teen bullies who I would put up against the worst neighborhoods in America any day of the week. I mean, you think you know mean, you you don't know mean until you've lived life as a 12 or 13 year old girl, then come back to me. Um, (laughs) But I do think, you know, back to the discussion we just kicked off with, there's, it's part of the reasons that I became a lawyer. Like I, I'd been bullied so badly. I wanted to stand up for people. Like I wanted to confront bullies. It's sort of, and actually it's been a true line in my journalism career too. You experienced this too, not with bullies per se, but just tough, tough guys everywhere around you. And you were never like the big, meaty, muscly dude. You mm-hmm. had to find another way of protecting yourself. And yep. it's directly related to what you do today. So talk about that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The neighborhood that I grew up in was the most dangerous part of Youngstown. So there's houses being arson, people being shot. There was, I I thought every city in America, there was always a police siren that you could hear from wherever you were. That's just what was normal to me. Uh, And so it was very dangerous and it was all very real. And I mean, bullying isn't even the word that Mm. was going on in my neighborhood. It was just straight up like thuggery. I guess we could call it like it was just you couldn't you shouldn't make eye contact with anybody. That's not a lot of fear, a lot of danger. And my whole way of handling that is if anybody ever tried anything with me, I would just make fun of them from the youngest from as far back as I can remember. You know, one of the famous little stories that I always tell is that I got beat up on my first bus ride to my first day of school. Mm. Um, 
I made fun of my, who ended up being and still is one of my good friends. I made fun of him because his grandma walked him out to, uh, to the bus stop. And like, he's standing there with his grandma as the bus pulls up. And I go, I can't remember exactly what I said, but basically something like, Oh, you had to have your grandma stand out there with you. And, uh, he punched me right in the face. So my, when I arrived to school, the first thing I had to do was rinse blood out of my mouth and a little tiny water fountain. Anyway, uh, it's just, are we both on his side in this story? So far I'm on his side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I deserve it. I didn't know at the time that, you know, that's what could happen. I hadn't really gotten punched in the face that much at that point. Street um, justice. Like, yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. And I mean, that's just carried on. And then I hated all my teachers all throughout school too. I always felt like they were, had something against me. They could bully me more because I didn't have like a dad to complain or to go to the parent teacher meetings. So I felt like they were my bullies, the teachers and the teachers were telling me making fun of people's never going to get you anywhere. And, uh, I mean, it's just the story is just it, wild to think out. that, that I, I use that as fuel to uh, literally make my entire life exactly that. My show Kill Tony, I make fun of people. I've written for the last, whatever, 10 Comedy Central roasts. I've been on a bunch of roasts, just did more roasts recently. The roast of Burt Kreischer. Uh, and uh, yeah, I literally make fun of people for a living. So like, how does it come know, to you? And maybe yeah. that's a weird question, but. I would always love to be more clever in my takedowns of people. And, you know, if you're not, if you don't have it, you don't have it. You know, just the way I talk about somebody privately, I'm not talking about on the air, just like when you dislike somebody, mm -hmm. I don't, I feel like it's a gift that you either have or you don't have, but it, am I wrong? Were you, was it something you developed from that moment on the school bus forward? And is therefore it's a skill any of us can have? I think it's a little bit of both, you know, you find out, I mean, yeah, there's a natural skill for it, but I definitely had it, uh, evolved and tailored you know i was lucky enough to have a a great mentorship under jeff ross uh the roast master general a decade and a half ago i went on the road with him and i told him you know if you ever need help writing jokes or anything i specialize in making fun of people he's like what's your email let's go and the rest is history and uh he taught me how to do it a little bit sweeter you know what i mean instead mm -hmm. of just going straight in on something, the first thing that you see, you can, you know, hit them in the ribs a little bit and, or make fun of something that they don't see coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, he taught me how to craft it a little bit more into like a martial art rather than just being very blunt about the first yes. thing that you notice about somebody. It's There's definitely this, um... an art form, but just like anything, you know, you find out like, yeah, Tiger Woods was a great golfer when he was 10, but he also practices all the time. So I do that all the time. Even when I don't say what I'm thinking about somebody, like making fun of somebody, if I don't say it out loud, I'm still thinking it and I can use it at a later time on you somebody else. You must be terrifying or... to, to spend time with at a party. This is like, I'm having the same feeling as I had when I interviewed the radical honesty guy who came up with this whole program <laughs> where you have to say whatever you're thinking and you can't have any filter. The whole time I was like, oh my God, he's going to lay it on me any second. You're, you must be yeah. a terrifying party guest. Nah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty, I'm pretty mellow. If I'm around strangers, I know how to, you know, how to, how to hide it a little bit. But if I'm around my crew here in Austin, like last night we were out at a bar with a big round table and it was just 
all my friends that know me so well, then I can really amp it up and just be <laughs> direct. Wow, you look like crap today. I mean, just no humor to it whatsoever. And everybody laughs, you know what I mean? Just being blunt and ridiculously. Uh, Do you know my mom? You know. It's weird. It's, I, I've been through this before. This sounds familiar. Um, so Austin, <laughs> Texas now, which is, mm -hmm. I don't know, that like what brought you, so from Youngstown to LA, you mentioned, yep. and that, now down to Austin. So why Austin? So I went to LA to go to the best comedy club in the world and start there, the comedy store. I did Dream Story, worked there, worked my way up, worked my way up the lineup. It was so much fun. You know, it's a dark place that's known for a bunch of misfits that literally are, you know, little troublemakers. And uh, so I developed there over 16 years. And then when the pandemic happened uh, and California completely mishandled the situation in every single way possible, um, I realized that, uh, yikes, I am not in the place that I want to be in. I mean, they had everything so closed. There were so many weird rules and especially where I was in West Hollywood and the comedy store is, I mean, it was chaos. And when the riots happened, they happened right next to where I lived. Um, my lovely little neighborhood, six minutes from the comedy store. Um, and I saw how they handled that. I saw how everybody was. I saw the, it was just there was a police car on fire on both ends of my street um, wow. when the when the George Floyd riots happened or the Black Lives Matter movement, whatever it was, you know, June of 2020 is when it was. And uh, mm -hmm. between that and the complete shutdown of everything, I just I was so miserable. And <clears throat> I came to visit Austin uh, and. I went golfing with Ron White. I was amazed at how open everything was. And Ron White and Joe Rogan really laid out the red carpet for me, showed me all the coolest, you know, places and how open the culture is. And, you know, instead of not doing shows indoors in California, we were doing shoulder to shoulder shows and there's no sick people. There was no, there was, there was the hospitalizations weren't, higher there was it was just an open fun mentally healthy place where everything at the time in la people everybody was so depressed everybody just wanted to get back to doing shows and all you could do there were these weird outdoor shows where people are 12 feet apart from one another so you have like 20 people scattered around a giant patio wearing masks nothing made any sense and uh I remember on my way back to LA, I got, I read a news report that California was going to close golf. You had to live in the same household with whoever you were going to go golfing with. Ridiculous. And they were going to check IDs at the main place to make sure that you live with the person, the people oh that my. you're golfing outdoors <laughs> in California with. And the timing couldn't have been better because, again, I was at a country club with Ron White the day before in Texas, having the time of our lives, cracking up, smoking, driving golf carts, beautiful day, waterfalls, everything's great, doing shows at night. And then I'm flying back to Cali and I'm realizing I can't golf 
outside with my friends Mm -hmm. and there's no shows at one point here's an interesting one at one point we were doing a thing where we were filming my live podcast at the comedy store but you weren't allowed to have an audience indoors so we streamed it outside to the parking lot on a screen and we just let people in for free just to just to just to if for anybody that wanted to come by that needed it just a laugh and uh the city of west hollywood came by and saw that there was a screen playing something that was happening live and they go that's a live show you guys are breaking the rules so they wrote a ticket to the comedy store it's just crazy for me to have these memories i kind of repressed them for a little while when i first Mm -hmm. got here and like, I think about these things, they just pop back into my head. And it's like, wait, I, I asked my buddy the other day, I go, they wrote a ticket that day, didn't they? Am I crazy? Am I remembering this wrong? Mm-hmm. He's like, no, they, they wrote a ticket. It was happening at the same time. I go, if there was a 10 second delay or something, would they have like, what, what are we talking about? A live yeah. show. And just um, mere gathering, so yeah. the gathering of humans was offensive. So you oh, got out, so you got to Texas, you got to the most liberal part of Texas, but you got to a sane state. So good yeah, for totally. you. I'm, sh- I'm sure it, you've felt it, the difference. Yes, no doubt. And it's funny. The most liberal part of Texas is kind of a, uh, I hear that a lot and it's, yeah, it is the most liberal part of Texas, but I, th- I think it's important for people to realize that, uh, the most liberal part of Texas is like saying the, uh, the coldest part of Antarctica. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. No, wait, actually, that's a bad analogy. <laughs> the warmest, but, uh, part. the warmest part. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yep, I got it. Still cold. And that's your point. Yeah, it's way. It's certainly yeah. any any place in Texas would be better than West Hollywood, L.A. I mean, there's a reason there's been such a mass exodus there. But yeah. can I ask you about this? So you find yourself in Texas. And I think if I'm if my timeline's correct, it was after that move that you found yourself I don't know. I don't think you were canceled, but I think there was an attempted cancellation. There was an attempted takedown um, because of a bit you did in an Austin, Texas comedy club. Yep. I made fun of a comedian after uh, he brought me on stage, a comedian that knows me, a comedian that I've hired for work. And at the time, uh, canceling was all the rage. And um, he knew that I was going to make fun of him. And he had a friend film the transitionary part of his set and he Mm -hmm. edited it and clipped it to make me look as bad as he possibly could. He picked the exact moment of starting and ending this clip exactly how he could possibly make me look the worst. And he played, uh, he played, victim with it and it was a very 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 uh very big surprise um and well, it's one uh, of those situations where you of course the news runs with the headline okay so tony used this this racial slur against an asian man oh my god he's terrible who would do that who would in being so uh kindly passed the mic with such a nice intro respond with a racial slur only a complete douchebag would do so but then you read more and there were some honest brokers who wrote the full story about what really happened. Like you, he did know you were going to make fun of him. It was like sort of not a preordained bit, but it, there was like some of it was known. And apparently his whole routine 
was about how you like don't say anything mean about Asian people. Like it be nicer to us. It's not cool to make fun of us. And it wasn't particularly funny, but that was whole. So you were you were basically it was baked into like, oh, this is how I'm responding to your be sweet, be sweet. No, I'm not sweet. It's right on brand for you if you know your line of humor. But that wasn't highlighted. Right. Exactly. And. You know, it's one of those things to where you talk about, you hear fake news and boy, when you're part of it, when you actually are in it and you realize, oh my God, all of these people that are reporting on this thing, like at the time, if you Googled me or went to the first line of my Wikipedia page, literally, I think it's changed now for some reason. I don't know who writes these things or how it even works. But at the time, I remember specifically the first line of my Wikipedia pages, Tony Hinchcliffe is an American insult comedian. And I think to myself, like, how do you continue the article? How do you call yourself a journalist or a reporter? If and, well, and God help you, if you make it to the second paragraph, you see that I've written on all the Comedy Central roasts that my specialty is not even making fun of people. It's really making fun of comedians. And meanwhile, they you know, the, everybody wanted to blow this thing up. It was Asian Heritage Month, which was I mean, I asked Asian people at the time when that started and they're like, I have no idea. This is a brand new thing. You know what I mean? Like I have a ton of Asian friends. I had a, I had a half Chinese girlfriend for four or five years at one point in my life. But to say that anybody doing anything on stage is a cancelable offense to me is absolutely insane. I mean, it's one thing if it's Twitter or Instagram, I could see how those things could be taken out of context, but no professional comedian is just going to all of a sudden lose his mind and go on a racial uh, um, uh, diatribe. Ex- no, I got it. Yeah, an, Here's, an ex- one of the things that bothered me the most about the, your story was your agents cut and ran. Oh, the agents are absolutely disgusting. I mean, I've had enough of them in my career to know that is the last person you want in your life. Don't get an agent. Find a way of making it without one if you can, because truly. They're disgusting. And there's a, there's always an exception here or there, you know, but it, in general, agents are absolutely disgusting. A hundred percent. They were literally, they ended up doing just as much damage basically as he did because on day two, when the news cycle should have been over, uh, they wanted to virtue signal, you know, and, and they, and dropped me for no reason, literally so that they can just, nobody knew I was even repped by WME at the time. It wasn't even a right, thing. Right. It's literally no calling cor- them saying, are you going to dump Tony? Right. Right. And it's just a corporation virtue signaling. It was disgusting. And it's just wild to think that that's the world we live in where it's like, oh, this is going to make us look good. Let's throw this guy who we know, who we've had dinner with, who we've you know, had great meetings with, who's made us laugh, who's gotten us into great shows, all these things. Let's bury him right now. We can do it and we'll blame it up on the higher up. So it wasn't up to me. You know, I wish I could have, I wish we could have continued working together. But a fun fact about that is that I see those people a lot because they rep other friends of mine and they, and I'll see them after Madison Square Garden performing in the middle of an arena with Rogan or after the MGM Garden Arena. And they're watching me literally because that 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 
assassination attempt on my career really woke up a whole nother level of my comedy, of my perspective, of just who I am. Now I'm this like, you know, and Texas too also did it. We're doing some real mm -hmm. rock and roll comedy out here. The phones are locked up all the time. It's nothing like what we're seeing on Netflix and HBO putting out there. I mean, even YouTube, I don't think could air exactly the type of stuff word for word, what I'm talking about and what a lot of my great peers here in Texas are talking about. And so they're seeing this leveled up comedy. They're seeing me even stronger than I was. Mm -hmm. And that's a true story. They had to watch me. My old agents had to watch me have the time of my life in a, you know, a custom suit in the middle of these arenas because they rep other people. And it's just so funny to me to think like, God, you must feel like such a tool, just such a moron. What a dork that you would drop somebody that now literally my career is like, I don't know, a hundred times better than it was before that cancellation attempt. Cause real comedy fans see right through that. And the That's thing legit. was weird what too. What comedy uh, fan would ever cut and run? from yeah. a comedian who gets kissed, the absurdity of that, right? Like they, they don't. So it's what exactly, what is the consequence? They're trying to make you so toxic you can't get on SNL or an HBO special. Like, what do you think is the goal in comedy of these very excitable cancelers? I don't know. I, I can't quite understand, but yeah, I think that they are such not comedy fans that they probably think, oh, well, the goal is an HBO special or the goal is a SNL. If they think that, it just goes to show their ignorance in the first place because those things are just dead old pirate ships that once had a thriving life. And it's, again, it's right. just the opposite Is there any comic who's now. dying to get on SNL in today's day and age? No. I mean, anybody? No. I know more people dying to get off of SNL than I know dying to get on it right yeah, now. Yeah, that makes more sense. So now yeah. you're out there. You basically didn't get canceled because you didn't allow yourself to be canceled. And that's like a secret of cancellation. You just refuse to be canceled. You can lose one thing. You could lose your agent. You could lose one deal, whatever. You could yeah. lose one role. But if you just keep doing your thing, and yep. to, in today's day and age, there's so many ways of just doing your thing, you're not canceled. Yep. And, and so you, that's how you manage to stay alive and upright and doing better than ever. Um, yep. I will say, I predict your agent will come back to you. This only happened in 2021. So I'm going to guess within the next, I'm going to put it in 12 months. In the next 12 months, WAME will come back to you because they have zero principle. All mm -hmm. they care about is money. So they cut you when they thought, oh, maybe somebody's going to be offended and we have to look like, you know, like one of our richer clients is going to be mad. So we got to like look like we're mad too. But now mm -hmm. they're going to come back. They're going to beg. And I, I already know what your answer will be. But I mean, it, that'll be a satisfying moment. I have been there too. Megan, you are so correct that it actually already happened and uh, instead i signed with the only bigger agency i ended up signing yes. with uta who yes, they good. literally hate their arch rivals and i'm at the tippity top and they are the absolute best and everything is better coordinated bigger shows and they're going to have to watch me announce this massive tour for the back end of 2023 with venues twice as big as they were ever ever able to put me in and Good. um huge huge stuff happening with my podcast kill tony to where you know i 
I can't talk about it now, but let I will say that the venue size that we are going to end up having some shows at is hundreds of times the size of you know, as I our current you, setup. I didn't like. First of all, I will say this: I I don't believe in UTA either. You're you're also on shaky ground. <laughs> Love yeah, no one, yeah. trust no one. Okay, just a word right. to the wise. However, um, I like sticking it to the ones who screwed you. Um, yeah. I, I'm just listening to you. Like it actually is hard in comedy without an agent. You know, in my business, it's not that hard without an agent, but in your business, like all that stuff you really, that's a, that's a massive undertaking to book all that stuff and manage all those venues and like, keep it all straight. You definitely need some sort of a help. And I'm having a newfound respect for the comedians who are up and coming, who don't have it, who are trying to make it in your industry. Right. Well, it's a little tricky. The agents can only help those who can sell tickets. So you know, when you're starting out, having an agent's almost pointless because they can't do anything for you. If you don't sell tickets, they're not going to put you in a venue. They're not going to take that risk and damage their relationships with whoever runs the venues in those cities. So, you know, the trick is being able to sell tickets. And again, you know, it's interesting. I find that, and we see it here in Austin a lot, the people that um, uh, are maybe have a new special out on the newly more woke Netflix and things like that. It's funny how tickets are still available that day mm -hmm. for their shows in those venues. And meanwhile, you see, you know, me, Joe Rogan, and uh, a bunch of other people, my homie Shane Gillis, uh, who they tried to cancel for they something did. that he said on a podcast, my good friend yep. Ari Shafir, who they said was too aggressive with a joke once on Instagram. I just had Roseanne Barr on my show on Monday. And awesome. these people have no problem selling tickets. These people that got in trouble for jokes. And not only that, but they are absolutely thriving. You know, my buddy Ari Shafir, again, people thought he was down and out a few years ago, just has literally has the best special of the year on YouTube right now. Um, Shane Gillis, who they canceled for an Asian joke. He was supposed to be on SNL and they they virtue signaled and fired him before he ever got to do anything, has the best special of the year before that. Um, it creates a little bit of a, it, I think it creates a monster when some, when a comedian is truly wronged for other people's virtue signaling bad intentions. I think that's how monsters are kind of created. And I, again, I had Roseanne on my show on Monday and she was so cognitive and so hilarious and so powerful. And she mentioned at one point, she goes, they stole everything from me. They stole my show. They stole my thing, but she's having the time of her life. She literally said being canceled is the shit. I'm so glad I'm doing this. Like, this is so much fun. I wouldn't have been able to do this if I was, if I still had the show on ABC or whatever. And she, we had the time of our lives. Roseanne was dancing. It was amazing. It's so sad too, yeah. because her show yeah. was so good. And it was one of the few shows that spoke to middle America and wasn't woke. Just that yep. phrase you said about canceled for a joke. It's like back in my day and I grew up in the seventies, that was the whole point of jokes was to offend you know, jokes, yep. Halloween costumes, all this stuff. Like you're meant to push boundaries. You're meant to shock, scare, make people feel uncomfortable. That's the pleasure in it. It's not all like rainbows and unicorns, little giggles. 
that's a that's a lane, but the dominant lane has is usually to kind of offend somebody. That's usually what makes people laugh. I, it I just is, feel like we've become yeah, so it soft. Is what, yeah, it is the most exciting part of everything. Literally, last night, Thursday nights tend to be the night in Austin where I can try new stuff a little bit more than other nights. There's a couple different shows where I can bounce around where I'm not on, I'm not announced. It's not my show. So I don't have to, um, you know, bring your a game perform, perform a stellar set. I can try new stuff. Phones are locked up. And literally yesterday, last night, I'm like, before this, before my first set, I got, I told my buddies in the green room, I go, oh, I'm about to try this new joke about the porn that George Floyd made. And I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. This is crazy. And they're like, what is it? I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to tell it here. If you end up hearing it, you'll hear it. But I'm not going to tell you here because you guys might tell me not to do it. And I don't want to hear that. Wow. And so I went on stage and I did some material to sort of, you know, get my footing and establish with the audience a connection. And then I go into it and I nail the landing and the it is the biggest pop of my entire set. This new thing where I'm like, I don't know, this is right on the line. Here we go. I don't know. Maybe only I think this is as funny as I think it is. And boom, this massive pop. And then I have a second set after that. So I walk down sixth street to another venue. And now at this point I have confidence in it. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm pretty sure this is like my best joke right now. Even though I just did it for the first time 15 minutes ago. And so I do it for the second set and now there's more around it. And now I'm delivering it with confidence. And anyway, after that, it goes even better and I add more to it. And then there's a call back to it because I did another joke and I realized, oh my God, I can now reference that. The point is, is like this thing where I'm like, I don't know, which I'm not really ever like that. But this one is so weirdly offensive uh, in a special way that I'm like, <laughs> I just don't know. And by the end of the night, here I am again. I was drinking with my friends celebrating because nothing is nothing brings me more joy than having a new joke that I was kind of concerned about. It's like birthing a weird little baby or something like that in my world. You need and to so, make that the tagline of your show, weirdly offensive in a special way. <laughs> Tony Hinchcliffe, <laughs> you should totally do it. Listen, I, I Tony, it. thank you. Please come back and we'll talk about the news and we'll talk about uh, your shows. And if I'm ever in Austin, I'm going to swing by and I'm gonna watch you test out those materials. I'll try to make it on a Thursday so I can get the new stuff myself. I love it. Absolutely. Anytime. Love to have you. All right. And you guys can all find Tony's latest tour dates and more about his live podcast, Kill Tony, at Tony Hinchcliffe. That's spelled H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E dot com. All right, you guys, thank you all so much for listening this week. I hope you have a great weekend. Next week on the show, Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew, the guys from Ruthless, and much, much more. Plus, we'll have the latest in the Alec Murdoch trial. Maybe we will get a verdict. We'll have it all for you. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.